Graham Beveridge. Graham Beveridge was my best friend in fifth grade, which is my last year in elementary school. And Graham was the coolest kid pretty much in the school, at least in, in the grade. And for some reason, he was best friends with me. He was fun, he was smart, he was super athletic. You know, he was like the fastest kid in the grade. And you know when you're 11, being the fastest kid means you're the highest on the pecking order of cool in the school. It just means you rule in every game at recess because you're the fastest, the most agile, the speediest guy there. And somehow, he was best friends with me. I was not the coolest kid in school. I was overweight, I was nerdy, I had bad skin. In fifth grade, I had bad skin. So uh, it hit me early. And somehow he was best friends with me. And, and I mean, I loved it. I, mean, I loved that seemingly the coolest kid in the school was best friends with me. Now, honestly, when I look back at the fact that he was best friends with me um, in fifth grade, I, I ask myself, why would the coolest kid in school be best friends with the overweight, nerdy, bad skin kid. And who knows, you know, I mean, I think it was fact. I mean, we had tons of sleepovers, right? Because that's also a measure of friendship when you're in fifth grade, how many sleepovers you have. And maybe it's just because he, you know, when you're that age and he just didn't think about who's cool is who's not and he just liked me. I know at least looking back, and I don't think I was conscious of this back then, that probably in my heart, I just love that the coolest kid liked me, that I could be associated with the coolest kid in school, that I could walk around recess and have my arm around him and like, that was fine with him. If I couldn't be the coolest, fastest kid in grade in the school, then at least I could be associated with that kid. And I think in some ways, Graham Beveridge helped me have a sense of feeling affirmed and accepted by my peers. I think all of us want to be accepted. No matter how old we are, whether we're in fifth grade or we're 75, we want to be accepted. We want to be affirmed for who we are in some way. It's just a natural human desire to desire that. And sometimes our attempts to be accepted and affirmed can actually lead to a lot of dysfunction in our lives, can lead to even sin in our lives, because we want it so bad. Now. I really do believe almost everyone wants that. Really, the only category of person who doesn't want that are the sociopaths, and I'm pretty sure no one's aspiring to be a sociopath out here, right? So I think you can relate in some way for this desire to be affirmed and accepted. Sadly, though, not many people do feel accepted, do feel affirmed for who they are as a person. We kind of put on a mask or, or, or a facade or front to kind of seem like we have it put together, that we're acceptable, that we're cool, that we're smart, that we're the fastest kid in class. We try to, to put out that image and maybe people will begin to accept us and affirm us. But it does lead to somehow we, we judge others. You know, somehow we can not accept ourselves and at the same time, not accept others, and maybe it's a way to compensate, right? We can, I think sometimes we see our own weaknesses in others, and so, you know, we, it's almost like we hate those things in them because we hate, these, hate, hate those things in ourselves. Or perhaps we have a strength of ours, and in that strength, we like hold on to how we're better than other people because we have this particular strength. 
And in that way, we also lead to others not feeling accepted. And so there's this great irony, right? There's this great irony of how we often don't feel accepted or affirmed, and yet we're at the same time not accepting other people. And the differences that we have amongst people lead to division and lead to their not being a getting along. Now, we live in Iowa City. It's a progressive town. And as a Christian living in a progressive town, there can be lots of good attempts to strive for the good of humanity together. And we should do that, for sure. But certainly as Christians, we can't lose sight of the fact that God says we should do all those things chiefly for the glory of God. We could seek common good together with people, whatever beliefs, and yet for us as a Christian in our hearts, we do it for the glory of God. And we're going to explore this idea in today's text that you heard read earlier in Romans 15. And we're really going to see a very simple point come across, and that is this. God accepts you. So accept one another for the glory of God. God accepts you. So accept one another for the glory of God. A little bit of context, right? So this happens at the end of Romans, the second last chapter of Romans. And there really is this theme of the glory of God throughout the book of Romans. And so we come again to Romans 14, uh, the chapter before the one we're looking at today. And there's this theme of the strong and the weak in the church existing together. How are the strong and the weak to exist together? Who are the strong and the weak? The strong are those Christians who feel the freedom to not follow many of the Jewish rituals and laws that have been set down. And the weak are those, are the Christians who believe they still need to follow many of those Jewish laws. And so there was this difference within the church, which is a very um, controversial, uh, hot topic, hot button topic for them because they were trying to figure out what does it mean to be Christian coming out of the Jewish faith. And so there was a lot of disagreement, a lot of conflict that happened as a result. And Paul says this, and Paul is indicating he agrees with the strong, but he says this uh, in Romans 14, verse 1 and 3, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome, or another word would be accept him, welcome or accept him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Verse 3, let not the one who eats, you know, eats according to the Jewish laws, eats, despise the one who abstains, um, I'm sorry, eats in contrary to the Jewish laws, despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed, has accepted him. Paul is saying, Christians, if you feel the freedom to eat whatever against the Jewish laws, you should submit that sense of freedom and right out of love for your brother who does not feel the freedom to do so. Do not be a stumbling block to that brother, brother when, you're, when you're in their presence. But at the same time, Paul speaks to the weak, to the ones who feel like they, they must still follow these laws, which Paul, again, says he doesn't agree with this. And he says, don't pass judgment on those who feel the freedom to eat whatever. And he says the reason is God has welcomed all of you. God has accepted all of you. So that's the context going into Romans verse 1 that we are going to focus on today. So Romans verse 1. Keep in mind, again, this idea of God's acceptance of us, his followers. Verse 1 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Now, just a quick note about this word bear with. Bear with here doesn't mean tolerate. Doesn't just mean to be patient with. Doesn't mean just, just, just bear with. You know, ugh, like that person's so annoying. I'm just going to bear with them. It means bear the weight of the failings. It means putting your shoulders under the weight of what they are going through, under the failings, the weight of the failings of what they're going through. So just a simple question for all of us to ask when we hear this text is, are we willing to bear the weight of the failings of our neighbors, our co-workers, our brothers and sisters in Christ here at church? Or do you, in reality, have no time, no patience to bear the weight of the failings of others? Do you quickly, in your mind, go to, well, that's just their fault. They just made a bad decision. They're just not very responsible with their money. They're just not very good with people. They just need to deal with the consequences. Maybe our hearts go there. But imagine this. Imagine if God bared with us in that way. Imagine if God bared with us in a way that was just, I'm just going to tolerate you guys. I'm just going to bear with you guys. I'm just going to, at best, be patient with you till you get your act together and you can come to me when you're done messing about. What if that was the kind of bearing with that God did with us? We'd be up the creek without a paddle, right? We need God to reach out to us. We will, where would we be left as broken humanity? We certainly wouldn't be a people with a savior. We need God to reach out to us, to bear with our failings. And so again, for those who believe in and follow Jesus, the call for us is to do the same for those around us. The same way that God bore the weight of our failings, God calls us to do that for, for those around us. Let's see what he continues to say. He says in verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, Paul's not talking about people pleasing. In any given room, there's going to be like half of you that are people pleasers, and you know it, you struggle with it. You're like, I got to stop doing stuff just to make other people happy, right? So this is not what Paul's saying, right? Paul's not saying we should be people pleasers. He's saying we should do good for others for their sake. That's what he means by pleasing, to do good for others for their sake. Not for our own sake, not for our own good, not for our own feeling good about ourselves, not for us getting in someone's good graces and them owing us, not for our machinations, not for our manipulation, not just so that we can say we're a good person. God says, Please others in the, says, in the sense of doing good for others for their sake. Now, this is this very simple phrase of doing it for their good is a check on our hearts. It's a check on when we go out to do good, who are we primarily doing it for? We all go into things with mixed motivations. That's just a fact. None of us do anything with pure motivations. So the question is, how much are we doing good for our own benefit rather than for the sake of the other person? And that's what the challenge is here in these words from Paul. Are we doing it for their good? And one way to just check our own hearts, check what our motivation is, is to ask yourself, when you are doing good for others, how much risk is involved? 
How much discomfort does it bring you? Usually, if it's too easy, it means we're doing it for yourself. Loving others the way that God loves involves some sacrifice, involves some risk, involves some like, I'm not sure I want to do this because it takes up too much of my time. I'm not sure I want to do this because it's out of my comfort zone. I'm not sure I want to do this because I'm not sure how they're going to respond when I say, I think this is what is best for you. So when we desire to do good for the sake of others, usually, again, it involves first a check of our hearts, and one way to check our hearts is to ask, does it just bring a little bit of discomfort because of the risk and the sacrifice involved? Paul continues, verse 3, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So that's a quote from Psalm 69, which you heard read. Now think about this again. If, if Christ wanted to please himself, if his primary goal was to please himself, he simply wouldn't have suffered for us on the cross. Just is pretty straightforward, right? It's not fun to do that. But as it says in Psalm 69, which points to Christ, he was zealous for his Father's glory. He was zealous to save creation. And the cost for Jesus was that he was persecuted and put down on the cross. The cost for Jesus was that he was cast out and crucified. The cost for Jesus that he was humiliated and hung on the cross for our sins. Clearly, he did not just do it to feel like a good guy, to feel like a good person. He didn't even do it primarily for the sake of us. Although he does love us greatly, he also did it for his Father's glory, for zeal of his Father's glory. And that's what compelled him to take on that which is so painful and so hard. It's this double-pronged love that he had, love for his Father, love for humanity, that enabled him to go forth and take on the price of such um, impossible weight of bearing our sins on the cross. Again, he didn't merely bear with our sins. He literally bore the weight and the consequence of our brokenness upon his shoulders, his very broad shoulders on the cross. And so for us, in the same way, if we say we are followers of this Christ, then we should not only be motivated for the good of others, but also for the glory of God in the same way that Christ was motivated for the glory of God. It is, in the end, our desire for the glory of God that will motivate us and empower us in the long haul. We can do a lot in a short amount of time for the good of others. But if it is only for the good of others, then we eventually will burn out. It is the desire for God's glory to honor and praise him that enables us to be on this journey of a long road of obedience, a life of quiet faithfulness to God, not for our own glory, not even just for the sake of humanity, but for the glory of God himself. And Paul brings this point home in verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul 
is praying and wishing for this unity and oneness amongst the strong and the weak of the church. Basically, the people who disagreed about very controversial stuff. Let there be harmony. Let there be an ability with one voice to praise God the Father. And it's not, again, just for the sake of peace amongst us. It's not just for the sake of the witness of the church to those who don't know God. It is for the sake of the glory of God that we strive for this harmony. In the Expositor Bible Commentary, it says this about this verse, which I really like. Lots of big words, though. And maybe only a physics person can appreciate this. So those of you in physics, I liked it. I'm not a physics person. The central pedal magnetism of the Lord can effectively counter the centrifugal force of individual judgment and opinion. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, high school physics was so long ago. I'm going to say it again. The centripetal magnetism of the Lord can effectively counter the centrifugal force of individual judgment and opinion. It was just about us and our opinions. We would just be pushed outward in all our different opinions. But it is the magnetism and the, the, the pulling together force of Christ, of God, that brings us together. Right? We are living in a divided country. And if it is just about our opinions. This is going to be this. We're going to go outward. It is the gospel that brings us together in unison, in unity with one voice to God. It is the gospel that reminds us that it is first and foremost what is broken in this world is humans' relationship with God. And we have to start there. That humanity is prone to forget our relationship with God. That humanity is prone to make God what we want God to be. Not just to let God be God. It sounds crazy to say we want to make God into what we want it to be. If God is God, he has to be God. And he defines himself. We can't define him. That would just be silliness. We should just worship ourselves if we're going to define God. And we are prone to live for our own glory, for the glory of humanity, rather than for the glory of God, our creator and our redeemer. Because he's our creator and redeemer, he deserves for us to live for his glory. And so Paul says in verse 7, Therefore welcome one another, accept one another, as some other translations say, as Christ has welcomed and accepted you for the glory of God. Okay, this phrase, for the glory of God. I know a lot of you have grown up in church and you have heard that you should live all of your life for the glory of God. Did you ever stop to think, what does that really mean? We just say it so much as Christians, but what does it really mean? You may have even memorized the verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Who wants to start up? 1 Corinthians 10.31. Anyone? Bold enough? I'll get you started. So whatever you eat or drink... Oh, man, fail. (laughs) You didn't grow up in the church or something. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, right? You've heard this. Do it all for the glory of God. So what is the glory of God? In the Bible, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod, and the Greek word is doxa. And in the Bible, generally, glory means majesty and splendor. And it had also been used in Scripture to describe like a brightness 
a luminosity, a splendor again, a manifestation of God in glowing light. And when we see those um, expressions of God, it is trying to show that God is unique. He is sublime. He is transcendent above all things, altogether set apart from all things. He exalted above all creation. The glory of God's nature then encompasses his wisdom, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his power, and his truth. Little plug, this is what you're going to be studying in this book, essentially. This is the women's book study, none like him, 10 ways God is different from us and why that's a good thing. Note, it's just the contemporary way of saying we're going to study the attributes of God, but we're going to make it sound cooler than that. It's just, really, it's just a classic, modern, contemporary take on studying the attributes of God, right? And we need to know the attributes of God because when we see and know and understand and feel the attributes of God, then we are just left organically to bring glory and praise to him. When we do everything for the glory of God, again, it means we bring honor and praise to him through whatever we do because he is our creator and redeemer and worthy of that honor and praise. God's glorious nature means something like this. When you're just around someone so smart, you can't help but notice how dumb you are in comparison to them, and you just blurt out, man, you're so smart. It's like you're in the presence of a beautiful sunrise, and it's so awe-inspiring, you can't do anything but whisper, wow. It's like... You're standing in a field in a thunderstorm, even though everything you've heard is, don't do that. And lightning strikes a tree and chars it to the ground right in front of your face, and you just go, oh my gosh. Like you're fearful for your life, for the power that has been displayed before your eyes. It's like being in the presence of sacrificial goodness of someone who says, I literally give you my heart, you heart transplant patient, and I will give up my life for you, and you can do nothing but just burst into tears out of thanks to that person. These are some very human ways of trying to say this is God's glorious, transcendent, unique, sublime nature that deserves our praise. Now, God in his justice is required to judge what is flawed and what is weak and what is wrong. And if we want to stand in his presence, it means we have to come face to face with the living and holy God. And that should be scary. Because if we're honest with ourselves for even just 10 seconds, we know there's brokenness in here that doesn't deserve to be in the presence of the holy, almighty God that we can't draw close. And this is... This kind of thing is perfectly demonstrated in Moses, one of Moses' interaction with God in Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses asks this quite daringly. Now show me your glory. Are you sure, Moses? You sure you want to see God's glory? And the Lord says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. No one may see God and live if we're just left to our devices. 
That is how amazing God's glory is. And one commentator says this, Moses could not see God's face, which is his glory epitomized, but God allowed his goodness to pass before his servants. The glory of God on this occasion expresses his uniqueness, his perfect holiness, consequently his detachment from the world, as in he's completely different from anything in this world, but also his deliberate intention to disclose himself to mankind. Moses is this great example in the Old Testament of pointing to who Christ would be as mediator between God and humanity. And therefore, many of Moses' interactions with God contains this tension of him being in the presence of God's glory and yet can't really bear that glory because of his own brokenness as a finite human being. And so like with Moses, God wants people to know him, to know his goodness, to know his love. And yet, God is utterly holy, perfect, glorious, just. And so, God cannot bear to be in the presence of sin or for evil to continue. In fact, because for his own namesake, for his own glory, he cannot allow sin to continue at all in this world especially sin that exists in us, his primary image bearers in this world. And so God is both deliverer and the judge at the same time. And it is no more clearly displayed than on the cross itself, right? Where God is judge against sin and evil, and yet he's deliverer through Christ Jesus himself who hung on the cross for all of the brokenness of mankind, all of the sins of mankind, God is absolutely just, and yet we are prone to self-indulge, to self-please, to selfishly do good for our own sake, not for the sake of others. We hear in Scripture Paul saying, Jesus is the fullness of God. For Jesus to be the fullness of God is another way to say that Jesus is manifestation of God's glory here in this earth. And the promise we are given is that we through faith in Christ, are hidden in Christ, hidden in the fullness of God, in the glory of God. We get to participate in the fullness of God and the the glory of God. And again, that is the hope that enables us and empowers us to go forth into this world to be obedient to him, even though we fear that we may be persecuted, that we will not be accepted or welcomed by the world, but we know we are welcomed and accepted by God himself. And that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compassion. And I want to end with a quote from literally maybe my favorite sermon. No, not favorite ever, but I read it, I think, almost every year. It's C.S. Lewis's sermon, Weight of Glory, which is contained in this book. Anyone want to borrow it, feel free to. It's multiple sermons in one. And in this, in this sermon, C.S. Lewis wrestles with, by the way, C.S. Lewis was a bad expository preacher. Like, he really doesn't reference the Bible much. But anyway, uh, still a great, a great sermon. Um, he really wrestles with these questions. Why does the glory of God matter? And why should we care about it? 
as humans. And in this famous sermon, you would know the very overquoted uh, quote, the one about mud pies in the slum and seaside holiday, but I'm not going to quote that again because I've done it too much myself. But there's so much good stuff in this sermon. And I want to quote a couple of things where he talks about why does God's glory matters? Why does it matter for us? He says this, apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior. You're not going to like it already. Uh, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. I am not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions or how very quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment before this happened during which the satisfaction of having pleased, pleased those who I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. There was a moment where he felt the praise of God, where it felt completely pure and received it as completely pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him who she was created to praise. We should long, go for it, man. We should long for our Father's praise. We were created for our Father's praise. Lewis is saying it is right and good for us to live for God's glory because we were created for that. We were created to bring honor and praise to him. We were to live out this design, and it is only when we live out this design do we truly find the meaning that we hope for in this life. We find the truest sense of acceptance as human beings when we realize we are made for God's glory. We are made right with God through Jesus Christ. But Lewis goes on to talk about the biblical idea of glory as brightness that I referred to earlier and what it has to do with us. And he says this. You're really going to have to read the whole thing, but anyway. And this brings me to the other sense of glory. Glory is brightness, splendor, luminosity. We do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. These are my words now. I believe in the deepest part of all of us, what we long for is acceptance and glory. To put it a different way, we long to be loved and to be lovable. We long to be loved and to be lovable. God's acceptance of us as sinners is achieved through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. I've said a lot about that already. That is where we know we are loved. But there is a part of us always that wonders, does God love us like a mom loves his ch her child? That is, you may be the ugliest, stupidest child ever, and your mom will still say you are the handsomest and smartest child she ever did see. 
we wonder, God, am I actually lovable or do you just kind of tolerate me? And God's glory as luminosity and our oneness with that glory says that the end of what God is doing is not just to wipe the slate clean between God and man, but to make us like God again, to fill us with the fullness of Christ, the glory of God, to share with him in it, to pass into the beauty of God himself through union with God. Through faith in Christ, we are made one. We are united with his beauty and glory. We are made both loved and lovable. So, my friends, God has accepted you. So accept one another for his glory. Let's pray.